The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. I want to talk to you today about pursuing a biblical vision for a life of radical generosity. Don't be too excited. That's what I want to talk to you about today. Pursuing a biblical vision for a life of radical, countercultural generosity. And the reason I think that for many of us, we get a little uneasy whenever the conversation about money comes in church. I think the reason that we get a little bit unsettled is because our world, from the time we are, we are born, has given us a counter narrative, a different story about money. Our world has a different vision for how we are to spend money and use money. And it's typically one of two extremes. Either there's the extreme saver who finds in their savings and IRAs and in their retirement, the security safety net that is their God that protects them in the day of trouble. But I think on the whole, especially in South Florida, the greater temptation is the other side of the spectrum. Our world gives us this competing vision for how we are to deal with our money and use our money. And I think about a a, a leather belt. And here's the vision our world has for you when it comes to your money. Whatever size belt you have, okay, our world tells you, you stretch that amount to the max and you ride on that last little loop for as long as you can. And sometimes if you need to, Don't feel shame. You got to cut the little hole. You poke the hole through the belt loop to stretch it out a little more, get a couple extra inches. You know what I'm saying? And you stretch it out and you live. And the moment you get a bigger belt, your financial capacity goes larger. You get more, you get a promotion, maybe a new job. Then what you do is you size up, you fill out that next belt. And our world has convinced us that this is what you're to do with your money. Uh, We have in our world, some of the smartest, most intelligent people working in the marketing industry who literally every year are spending billions and billions of dollars putting advertisements that are exactly catered to your preferences to play off this reality in our hearts. Uh, Just this past weekend, I was trying to figure out how to build a Rubik's Cube with my son. And uh, I looked up on YouTube how to solve a Rubik's Cube Okay, about an hour and a half later, we figured out how to do it. And then I'm getting inundated with all of these advertisements for different Rubik's Cubes all throughout my phone. I mean, this is how our world works. It feeds us. You need more. What you have is not enough. And so what ends up happening is our lives are marked by stress, anxiety, worry, I mean, we've stretched out the belt loop and we're trying to stick a hole and trying to get as much out of it as we can. Americans are swimming in credit card debt on the whole. Our culture has a narrative, has a vision for your money. And some very intelligent people, the world is working to try and get you to buy into that vision. And what I wanna do is I wanna offer you a biblical vision for a different approach, a different way of seeing things. Here's what I want. I want for you to be the Bob Munden of generosity. Bob, you know Bob? You ever heard of Bob Munden? Oh, Bob, you don't know Bob? All right, I want to show you a picture of Bob. Here's Bob. There's Bob. Look at him. Just a sterling man, okay? Bob Munden. Okay, Bob Munden, he was born, I think, a couple generations too late. 
Bob is world famous for holding the world record, multiple world records, but the world record for the fastest quick draw. Listen to this, Bob can draw his revolver from his holster, accurately shoot a target, and replace the revolver in his holster in .0175 seconds. I said that accurately. .0175, there's even video of him on YouTube, you can look it up. In .01, faster than it takes to blink, he can fire his revolver and replace it. He's not the kind of guy you wanna come sneak behind and surprise, okay? That could end poor. I mean, his reflexes are just unreal. It's almost unbelievable how that's possible. Here's what I want for your life, and here's what I want to inspire you to do, to do today from 2 Corinthians 8. I want you to be the Bob Munden of generosity. I want this for my life. I, I want the reflex that just overcomes me when presented with an opportunity. I want to just overflow with generosity that my heart is not consumed with I need more for me, but my heart instead is ready and able to respond generously. And I wanna show you how Paul lays this out. Second Corinthians chapter eight. And here's what we're gonna do. I wanna lay out this vision for a life of generosity. And then I wanna invite you to take two key steps forward in living out that vision. So let's look at the passage, second Corinthians eight, starting in verse eight. This is what, the Holy Spirit says through the, through the Apostle Paul, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment, this benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance will supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. Here's what's happening in this passage. This is a letter written from a man named Paul, a leader in the early church to a church that he started in the city of Corinth. And we have two of Paul's letters. He wrote multiple letters uh, to the church at Corinth and we have two of them in our Bibles. And Paul is describing here this collection he's preparing to take from churches that are all around the Roman Empire. He references the churches of Macedonia that have already given a generous gift to support the needs of Christians who were living in Jerusalem. So at this time, there was a famine in Jerusalem. There was extreme poverty among the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. So Paul is rallying churches all throughout uh, the Roman Empire to give generously to meet the physical needs of the Christians living in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians there, and to equip them to be able to do ministry there to get the good news of Jesus out. So he's fundraising, collecting these funds, and he here in these verses gives the, what I would say is the heartbeat behind Christian generosity. 
He lays out, this is why of all people, followers of Jesus ought to be the most generous people on the planet. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Generosity is a reflex of someone who has been rescued by Jesus. Generosity is a reflex of someone who's been rescued by Jesus. This is the vision Paul's, Paul lays out. Because here's, here's the situation. Before Paul showed up in Corinth and told these Corinthians about the good news of Jesus, to give you a little bit of a taste of the framework that the, the Corinthians were operating from, their, their belief system and practice, they belonged and subscribed to a form of uh, Roman, Greco-Roman paganism that worshiped the various pantheon of gods, the pantheon of gods of, uh, of different types of gods for different things. So if you need help in this area of your life, you give money to this God. And if you need help in this area of your life, you pray to that God. And if you need help in this other area of your, your life, then you perform this ritual for this God. And this is the world that the Corinthians were swimming in. Listen to how one historian, Tom Holland, in his book, Dominion, depicts what it was like to live in this religious climate before the coming of the gospel to Corinth. Here's what he writes. Naturally, with so many different ways of paying the gods what was owed them, and with so many different gods to honor, there was always a nagging anxiety that some gods might be overlooked. A citizen set the task of collating and inscribing the traditions of Athens discovered to his horror, a long list of sacrifices that everyone had forgotten. The expense of restoring them, so he calculated, would bankrupt the city. The bloodthirsty gods of Roman paganism, what they demanded, it would have bankrupted one of the most prominent influential cities if they actually did the sacrifices that the gods were owed. And this nagging anxiety, have I done enough? Did I do the right ritual for this God? Is, are the gods punishing me because I didn't do this enough? This is the world they're living in when someone named Paul enters the city and proclaims to them good news of a different God news about the one true living God, who look with me at verse nine, how he describes this God. Look at what he says. Verse nine, he says, for you Corinthians, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul comes and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the greatest act of generosity in the history of the universe. Jesus Christ, the son of God, who created all things we're told in scripture, Colossians chapter one and John chapter one, all things were made for Jesus. If you made all things and everything belongs to you and is for you, that means you're pretty rich. Jesus, who is self-existent, lacks nothing, he stooped down, he became flesh, he entered into humanity. He became flesh and on, in his life on earth, he was born to literal physical poverty, born to parents who were of low social standing. And Jesus, in his death, offered up his life I want you to hear how Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, one of the apostles, describes the cross. Here's what happened in Jesus' death. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. 
It says this about Jesus. He himself bore our sins on the tree, describing the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then listen to this. By his wounds, you have been healed. He describes the gospel as this message of Jesus Christ bearing your sin on himself. He takes the sins of humanity onto himself and Jesus offers up his life as a substitute in your place. He absorbs the wrath that's due sin that should have been pointed at you. Jesus absorbs it himself. And it's by his wounds you're healed. In other words, God loved you so much, he bankrupted himself to rescue you. Paul comes to the Corinthians and tells them good news of a God who is radically rich in grace and mercy and love. He tells them of a God who gave everything for them. And if they've experienced that kind of grace, if they've been on the receiving end of that kind of forgiveness and mercy, then how could they not respond with this reflex of generosity? They, they've experienced what it's like to be saved from the paranoia of wondering, have I done enough to make God happy? Maybe some of you are here and you're operating with that pagan framework that you think to yourself, have I done enough to make God happy? Have I prayed enough? Have I done enough good works? Have I said the right things? Have I put the formula in the right order? And God has come to you in Jesus and through his life, death, and resurrection as a free gift of his grace offers you forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. All you do is receive it and surrender to him. That's generosity. Yeah, we can clap for the generosity of God. If we've been on the receiving end of that kind of grace, in verse eight, Paul says, I'm confident this is gonna prove, this is gonna bear itself out in your generosity because you've experienced his grace. I ask you the question. I ask those of you at Cooper City the question. Have you received this grace? Have you been on the receiving end of God's generosity? Have you said yes to Jesus? I surrender to you. Well, then he calls you. He says, generosity is a reflex of someone who has been rescued by Jesus. Second thing I want you to write down, Paul's biblical vision for a life of generosity. Write this down. Generosity blesses the receiver and the giver. Generosity, according to God, blesses the receiver and the giver. Look at verse 10. Look back down at the passage. Here's what Paul writes. He says, and in this matter, he's speaking about their act of giving towards the needs of the Christians in Jerusalem. In this matter of generosity, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Did you catch what he's saying? So we get how when someone gives generously, it's intuitive for us how that blesses the person receiving the gift. Like that makes sense. There's Christians in Jerusalem who are struggling. They're just trying to make it. They don't have enough food to eat. It makes sense to us, wow, what a blessing for them to receive financially from brothers and sisters in Jesus in a different town. What a blessing to them. But Paul says, 
I want you to know about this. This is my judgment, that this act of generosity benefits you, Corinthians. This is for your benefit. That when we give, it's not just to bless the receiver, but there's a blessing for the giver. Look how he says it again in verse 13, uses different words to get the same message across. Look at verse 13. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that, listen to this, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Paul says there's abundance on the part of the Corinthians. We know from Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth that the church at Corinth was filled with people from different socioeconomic categories. One of the beautiful things about the gospel in our gathering, we ought to have people who come from completely different backgrounds, ethnicities, speak different languages. We ought to have people who make vastly different uh, types of money because what unites us is not our income bracket, what unites us is our savior. And our savior does not show partiality. He does not favor the rich or the prominent. In fact, he says, it's difficult for the rich, Jesus says, to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we know from his first letter, there are wealthy Christians in Corinth. And he says, and we get this, this is intuitive to us, that it is right and fair for the abundance that they have to supply their need. Here's where we're like, wait, Paul, did you say that right? He says, the Jerusalem Christians who are in extreme poverty and are in need of financial provision, they have an abundance to offer the Corinthians. Did you see that? They have something to offer them. There is a blessing that God brings, not just to the person who receives the gift, but also the person who gives it. I'm not talking about, and Paul's not talking about that one day, this is not an I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back type blessing. That's not what I'm talking about. Paul isn't saying, hey, they have an abundance in the future that they're gonna send money back your way to repay their debt. That's not what he's talking about. He says, there is a blessing to be given. There's a blessing to be experienced by the giver when we meet a need. Here's what generosity does when we give. Here's what generosity does. Generosity, it cuts out from under its legs the idol worship of money. When we respond in generosity, it just, it just inflicts a mortal wound in that idol that so desperately wants the throne of our hearts. I mean, we... When we give generously, it just cuts at its core. Generosity, it breathes gratitude into our hearts. When I'm generous and not as much focused on what I don't have and what I want, it brings gratitude, it brings contentment. When I'm generous, that means I am choosing to be content with what I do have, not obsessing over what I don't have. I mean, we, we do this, right? Like that endless scroll through Facebook Marketplace, trying to find a deal on that gadget or thing we want a few times a day, setting up alerts to let us know if it comes at the price, because we really, I'm speaking for a friend. I don't know what this experience is like. And you just keep going and you just, it's like this thing all day long. I did, well, you know. Or how about this? Like one click Amazon purchases. Oh my word, can we? Or, or target pickup orders, okay? 
I mean, it's so easy for us. Now, all those things, there's nothing wrong with the Target pickup order. Here's what I'm getting at. Here's what I'm getting at. Our hearts are so prone to think, I need more, I need more, I need more. They're building storage units everywhere. Self-storage, because we have so much stuff, we don't know where to put it. And we're on this road and we're just walking blindly thinking this leads to life and we keep trying to make the belt loop work thinking we could just poke another hole in it and God is inviting you into the blessed life of generosity that brings contentment. And let me just remind you, uh, so just unabashedly right now, my goal, again, I wanna say it out front. I wanna inspire you I wanna inspire myself to live a life of radical generosity. Because do you realize what you signed up for when you said yes to Jesus? Do you realize who you said yes to? Well, when you became a Christian, when I became a Christian, do we, do we realize what we did in that moment when we said, Jesus, I surrender to you. You're my Lord and my King. Here's what you said yes to. You said yes to the Holy Spirit one degree at a time, conforming you into the image of Jesus. That's what you said yes to. You said yes to the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life as the highest authority. He is your God. There are no other gods. Jesus made it plain. You cannot serve me and money. He will not share the throne of your heart. When you said yes to Jesus, you said, I'm signing up that God would work in my heart, that he would prune that he would strip away and that he would make me more like Jesus. And have you read any of Jesus' life lately? Have you spent any time just kind of looking at how Jesus lived lately? I mean, it's, it's remarkable. I recommend it. He is the ultimate generous one. He is the one that gave everything. That's what defined his life. He was a servant of servants. And so this is what Jesus has for you. I want you to imagine your life positioned in such a way where your finances were not the source of a nagging anxiety, but were instead the source of this incredible blessing and contentment that comes in becoming more like Jesus. Now, how do we do that? How do we take steps in that direction? I wanna offer you two key steps from this passage of how we can step into alignment with that vision that God has for us in this area of our finances. Number one, I want to invite you to write this down. Number one, we need to repent. We need to repent for the ways that the world has formed our hearts towards money. All true change begins with repentance. That word repentance, it means to change your mind. It means that you were heading in one direction and you are now completely changing directions. That's what the word means. We need to repent for the ways that we've allowed the world to shape our view of money. I wanna show you this picture. Uh, we'll put it on the screen. And uh, uh, for some of us, you know, this is our version of the, the Old West right here. Off-roading, a dirt road. There you have it, okay? So here on this picture, there's, you'll notice uh, next to that gorgeous, some of you, it's not helping that there's a really cool Jeep on the screen right now. This is a real cause of temptation. Ignore that. Look at the, look at the trail, okay, for a moment. Here's what I want you to picture with me. 
On that image, I want you to notice how there are these trenches that are dug out on the trail from where countless vehicles have gone over that same path, okay? Just countless vehicles have passed through there. And the goal, right, if you're off-roading is, I want to stay on that trail. Because that part of the dirt trail is the smoothest. It's the part that's most compact. If I was to try and get off that trail, I would be in for some dangerous and treacherous territory. And when I was thinking about the way that our world works, this, this type of image came to my mind that our world presents to us a path that is well-worn, smoothed out, easy to follow, and it's a path that with deep wheel wells says, just come like everybody else is coming. Just live just like everybody else. This is the way, this is the way that everybody does it. This is the way that you're, you're to do it. Just come, it's been smoothed out for you. Everybody else lives like this. Here's what we also do. There are other Christians who live like this. I mean, I look at how other Christians live and how they use their finances and they're on this path. And so if they're on that path, clearly that must be what God wants for my life. And what I just want to say is we need to recover a Christian biblical vision for our finances, not an American one. If we're followers of Jesus, first and foremost, that means our allegiance is first to him. We submit to the authority of his word. And the path of least resistance that our world offers us, we fail to stop and ask the question, where does that smooth, easy path lead? I'll tell you where. We are perhaps the most anxious generation, most stressed out generation, overworked generation, disillusioned, feeling a lack of purpose. We're the most discontent and we have the most stuff. That path that our world has spent billions of dollars marketing to try and get us to believe, that path has led us to emptiness to realizing that the God of money doesn't satisfy. And Jesus offers a better way. When you read Paul's teaching here in 2 Corinthians 8, when you read Jesus' teachings on money, it's like you're reading someone from a different planet talking about money. I mean, if we just think about the way that our world thinks about money, talks about money, how we see it spent on movies. It sounds like someone, like an alien is trying to speak to us about this crazy, wild, different thing. And I just wanna invite you, look at how our world is working right now. Look at how people are doing what their finances are and pick which path you think leads to life. Is it really working? Is it really bringing the satisfaction we thought or is it leaving us feeling empty and feeling like I just need a little bit more? I just need a little bit more. And then when we get more, we just need a little bit more. Jesus invites us off of that treadmill to nowhere and says, be satisfied in me. We need to repent. We need to say, Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, I don't, I don't want the way other people spend their money. I don't want that to influence me. I want your word to form and influence me. Second, second step we need to take after repentance, 
We need to resolve that the gospel will set the scale for your generosity. We gotta resolve that the gospel will set the scale for your generosity. You see, uh, up to this point, I've been talking very generally about this word generosity, but how do you even define it? What, what is generosity? Um, this makes me think of when I was uh, in high school, I first started driving, and I uh, started for the first time driving, going out to eat at restaurants with friends uh, without my parents. I thought it was really cool. You know, you go, you show up to TGI Fridays, and you, you know, you go and you sit down and you, uh, you order your food, and then the check comes, and we were those, if anybody here w- w- is a server or was a server at some point in their life, like we were those annoying uh, kids who was like, hey, we need eight separate checks, you know? And uh, so we'd get separate checks or whatever, and just here's what was normal in my home. My sense was that, this is just what I was taught, 20% is what you tip someone at, at a restaurant. It's just what my parents always did. They taught me to do it. When I learned how to do math, my dad would slide me the receipt and make me, make me do the tip and all that kind of stuff. So that's my scale. That's my reference point. And then I go out to dinner with my friends from high school, and I'm there, and you know, we had, some of them you know, had like a $20 bill, something like that. Or, and, and there's somebody who would leave like $1. And I said, hey, bro, are you out of money? Do you need help with the tip? And, and he'd say, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, that's not a tip. That's not what you do. You do 20%. And it was to him, I guess, from his framework, that was completely foreign to him. It was like I had a third eye, okay? Like what was happening in that moment is we had completely different scales of what we're talking about when it comes to generosity in the, in the area of tipping. What is Paul's scale when he talks about generosity? It's the gospel. Paul's scale is Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. Paul's scale is Jesus gave everything so that we might experience eternal life. So the question of what scale are we talking about? When we say radical generosity, what what are we implying? I love how one author, it's helpful with things like this to read people who lived in a different generation. That's why I encourage people, read Christian biography, read church history, because you're interacting with the lives of people who read the same scripture we read, but lived in a very different world. And so the way they lived their faith out in some cases seems jarring to us for good or for worse. There's some ways that we as modern believers in Jesus today maybe have a leg up on in certain areas of those who came before us, but there are certainly some things that those who followed Jesus in generations past have to teach us about our finances. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes what kind of scale are we talking about? He says this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. C.S. Lewis responding to 
the word of Jesus. What kind of generosity are we talking about? We're talking about a scale that's very different from the scale of generosity. Our world thinks, and for some, listen, there are some like that poor widow that Jesus points out at the temple who gives like a penny. And Jesus says, look at her faith. Like she gave everything. That was all that she had to offer. And there are some of us that that's where we're at. And so a small, what seems like a small act of generosity to the world, God sees and he affirms and he says, that's beautiful. But for the large majority of suburban Pembroke Pines, Cooper City, Miramar, Plantation, Sunrise, Southwest Ranches, Davie residents. That's not what we're talking about for many of us. What's the scale for generosity? C.S. Lewis, he says, I don't know exactly how much, but I know it means we ought to live different. In the Old Testament, the framework that God's people were given really starting with Abraham, who met this man named Melchizedek, a framework that they were given from an early, early stage was this concept of a tithe, a tithe, a 10% of your income. And then God prescribed for his people to have different tithes. There were multiple tithes that they had to give in order to present offerings to the Lord at the tabernacle or the temple and to support the priests and the ministers who served God's people as leaders over them. So God prescribes them this 10% offering. Well, Christians have wrestled with this. What does this mean for how we live and give financially? Because we are not the nation of Israel and we are not God's people living under that old covenant. We are in a new covenant with Jesus. Jesus, we're told, establishes a new covenant in his blood. Through his sacrifice on the cross, we have a new covenant. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law. So Christians, it is accurate to say we are no longer bound under the law to the way that the Old Testament people of God were bound. So then the question is, well, then what does God have for us when it comes to our finances? There are some who say, well, I'm no longer bound by that Old Testament law. So it really doesn't, you know, whatever I give, I choose to give, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be 10%. And I agree with that. It doesn't have to be 10%. I would just respond back with this question. Who do you think God has a higher expectation of when it comes to generosity? his Old Testament people who were living in an agrarian society, his Old Testament people of God, or the New Testament, new covenant, blood bought by Jesus, Holy Spirit filled, reconciled to their creator, forgiven, redeemed and washed clean by the blood of Jesus, God's radical act of generosity has been put on display. We live on the other side of Jesus' generous sacrifice for us. Who does God have a higher expectation for generosity on? I would say, how can we not? How can we not say, Lord, 10% sounds like a great starting point for some of us. Maybe that's the first step to get to, but I would agree, don't stop there. Jesus says, it's crazy. Jesus says this, 
In Luke's gospel, he says, when we give to the needy, the poor, the outcast, Jesus so identifies with the outcast, the lowly, and the needy. He says, when you give to them, you give to me. When we're generous in that way, that's an offering to the Lord. And so we bring our offerings to the Lord through the local church, and we want to go above and beyond that and be generous to the people and needs all around us. Let's let the gospel set the scale for our generosity, not our world not what other Christians do, and not the self-justification, well, I know this guy, and they're doing that, and they're doing this, but let's say, no, I'm going to choose the belt buckle, the loop is going to be here, and I'm going to say, Lord, how do you want to use me to be a blessing to others? God has given us, he's been so rich to provide for us our needs. He invites us to trust him in this area of our finances, and listen, The goal when it comes to generosity, don't misunderstand, don't mishear me. The goal for generosity is not to check off some religious requirement. The goal is transformation into the heart of Jesus. The goal is not fulfilling an obligation out of duty. The goal is a heart that has been transformed to become more like Jesus. That's the goal. May we just absolutely be ruthless in not allowing the low expectations for our world. Let us not allow the low expectations of what we have, of of our version of Christianity to set the scale for what God wants to do in our lives. Let's let the gospel do that. Let the gospel inspire us in this way. For some of us, that does mean starting somewhere. If you're not currently engaged in giving in some way financially to your church, then then I would say pastorally, it's time to start. If this is your church or if you're a part of another church and you're visiting, you need to go give to that church. If City Rev is your church home, it's time to start somewhere and say, Lord, I, I trust you in this area of my life. You're my provider. I'm not my provider. I wanna worship you through my funds. It's time we start planning and budgeting our finances to have margin so that as needs come up, we have this this reserved fund that says, hey, as an opportunity comes up to bless someone, I want to have it already planned, already purposed, that I'm going to be a blessing. I want to inspire you to a life of radical generosity. For others of us who do give, maybe it's time we reevaluate. We reevaluate where we're at in this area. For some of us, it maybe start by budgeting, finding out where are my funds going? Where, where is God's money that he's entrusted me to steward? How am I spending it? As his steward, and it's time to reevaluate our funds in this way. And then there are others of you, listen, there are others of you, I want especially this group to listen closely. There are others of you that so beautifully model this reflex in your life that reveals the heart of Jesus. There are some people in our church, we just had a recent story example in our church that I got a front row seat to of people displaying radical generosity. And to see that, man, it just makes my heart glad. And you talk to the people who got involved in that opportunity, and they were glad to do it, brought joy to their heart. 
I mean, it's beautiful. There are some that, that what I want to say to you is God smiles. He, he sees something of Jesus in you in that heart of generosity as you model it, as you display it, as you say, I'm going to get off the well-worn paths of our world that lead to nagging anxiety. And I'm going to instead practice the way of Jesus, get on with his plan and purpose for our lives. I want you to imagine your life, your life right now. I know inflation. I know bills. I know gasoline's expensive. I know, I, I know all those things. I'm feeling it myself in our family. But I want you to imagine your life for a moment where you are reflecting the grace of Jesus that's been poured out on you in every area of your life, including your finances. That your finances would not be a place of stress, a place of worry, a place of discontentment, but that it would be a place where God's grace is shining, where gratitude and peace and joy define your heart. I want you to imagine that version of you. This is what God invites you into. Now, naturally, saying, going to a passage like this, talking about money, there are some of us that may feel unsettled, unconvinced. There are some who are probably listening, and you have a number of reasons in your head why I'm wrong. And there might be some things that I, I misspoke on. I pray God's forgiveness and mercy on me. But what I would just ask you humbly to do, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, I want you to hear the words of Jesus. Jesus told a parable about a farmer who went out to plant some seeds. And he said that the seed represents his word. The seed represents the gospel, the news of what Jesus would do. And this farmer goes out and he plants seed on different types of soil. And there's one soil where in the metaphor Jesus uses, the enemy, Satan, confuses them, disrupts their, their mind from being able to understand and comprehend the good news. And so they just don't even consider it. They hear the gospel, don't, it bounces right off them. There's a second group that Jesus says, the farmer sows the seed, and at first, things look up. The person seems like they're receptive to the gospel. They say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I, I, I want to follow God in this area of my life. And then it says, Jesus says that persecution comes. Suffering comes. And Jesus says that that person falls away and does not produce fruit because they thought in their minds that their arrangement with God was, God, I will follow you if you will make my life easy and go the direction I want it to go. And the moment that expectation gets shattered and they experience difficulty, they say, all right, I'm out. But then there's a third category. Jesus says, there's a third type of seed. He says, there's this seed that's sown among thorns. And he says, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And so the plant does not bear fruit. For them, for this type of soil, it's that the love of money and the deception that money has spun around them, the desire for more possessions and things and status, Jesus says that deceives them so they don't bear good fruit. This is an important topic. Jesus addresses it directly multiple times because he loves us too much. 
to be ruled by a master that is ruthless and will leave you dissatisfied, disappointed, disillusioned, and empty. And Jesus wants to invite you to be good soil. Good soil that receives the message of the gospel with open hands and says, Lord, all that I am is yours. And what God does when we come empty-handed, what God does is he pours out his grace and forgiveness in our lives, his riches, his storehouses of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And then he says, now go and live in light of the grace that I've shown you. That's what God invites you to. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we wrap up our time? I want to invite you right now to talk to the Lord and say, Lord, is there an area of my life? Is there somewhere in my heart where you're trying to get my attention right now, Lord? Father, I ask for that person right now that's self-justifying and excusing and the thoughts are going through their head as to why this doesn't apply or this couldn't work. Lord, would you just refute that lie? And would you work in their hearts right now a knowledge of your fatherly provision that you're our provider? Oh, we, don't need, we don't need to have our our hands on the wheel and on the throttle of our lives, Lord. You are the one who takes care of us. And so, Father, may we be a church that's marked by radical generosity. Lord, may that be my life. May that be my story. Oh, God, we repent. We repent for living our lives in, in the pattern of this world, Lord. Lord, we repent for looking and living like everyone else as if your gospel leaves us unchanged. Lord, how could it be that we who've said yes to Jesus, the most generous one who gave everything, how could it be that we leave unchanged? So Father, I pray that you would right now in your kindness lead us to repentance. Change our minds, Lord. Father, I pray for the person right now who hears this and they're burdened right now. They're overwhelmed with financial stress and worry. They don't know what to do. They can't make ends meet as it is. And to, to even think about being generous just sounds even more overwhelming. Lord, I pray for that person right now that you would, by your grace and mercy, would you just work in their heart to give them wisdom, to help them trust you, to help them realize that you are the one who says to us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to us. Father, help us to have that kind of confidence in you, trust in you. Lord, deliver us from materialism. Deliver us from the worship of money. And then Lord, I pray right now for the person who's here who has not received your grace. Lord, I pray if there's a person who maybe they thought that they were the seed in the good soil, but in reality, they're the seed in the thorny ground. And their relationship with you, they've said, it's off limits, can't touch my money. Lord, right now, I pray you would work in their hearts. And I pray, Jesus, that you would right now shine into their hearts the beauty of your good news and of your grace that is a far superior 
desire than for more money. In fact, if that's you, if you've never received the grace of God in Jesus and surrendered all to him, I wanna invite you right there where you are to say right now from your heart to Jesus, say, Jesus, I repent. I turn away from my sin and I turn to you. Jesus, I believe on the tree, on the cross, you took my guilt and shame, you died for me. By your wounds, I am healed. If that's you, if everybody's heads bowed and eyes closed, if you just right now just prayed and said, Jesus, come into my life, save me and rescue me, would you just slip your hand up and say, that was me, that was me. I put my trust in Jesus just now, that was me. Father, thank you for your good news. Thank you that you tell a better story than the story our world feeds us. Help us to believe you. Get us off the smooth path. Help us to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Hey, if that was you a moment ago that made that decision to put your faith in Jesus, I wanna invite you to take a courageous step in a moment, we're gonna have some prayer counselors who are gonna be up here in the front. And if you need prayer for anything in your life, if you need prayer for your marriage, prayer for your finances, prayer for healing of some physical ailment, prayer for a son or daughter who's, who's wandered away from God, if you need prayer, I wanna invite you to come forward. There'll be people up here who are ready to pray for you. But if you just now put your faith in Jesus, I wanna invite you to come for, for prayer and say, hey, would you pray for me? I just put my faith in Jesus. We would love to pray with you. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna invite all of us, let's stand up. Let's stand up together. Let's close in worship and then you come forward for prayer as God leads. Let's go to him. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.